Okay. We uh, called I'm you Adam, back because there was some our, kind of our issue. Next episode of the Grox podcast, and I am here with Dr. Melissa Murray, who's oh. an associate professor of neuroscience at the Mayo Clinic. So, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Murray and I are going to be spending some time talking about Alzheimer's disease. So, Alzheimer's disease uh, was originally discovered in the 20th century by Alois Alzheimer, um, and more than a century later, it currently affects more, uh, nearly 6 million Americans. Uh, it's considered to be the most expensive disease in the United States, and it currently uh, really has been very difficult to treat. It only responds marginally to a lot of the av- available drugs. And uh, based on kind of ev- epidemiological surveys, uh, the thought is that unless we get new disease-modifying drugs uh, relatively soon, uh, the number of Alzheimer's disease cases in the United States could increase by uh, more than twofold by the middle of the 21st century. And one of the real difficulties of this is that we are, are still trying to understand the exact sequence of events that goes on with Alzheimer's disease and the actual kind of pathology of it. And it's for that reason why I think it's been so difficult for us to come up with good treatments. And I think the disease really hits home for a lot of people because I, I remember hearing from a recent survey that uh, more Americans uh, responded as being afraid of developing Alzheimer's disease than of uh, just death overall. So I think it's something that's really um, a very uh, major topic and something that people are, are increasingly thinking about. Uh, so before I talk to Dr. Murray about her work, I want to quickly talk to her. I want to quickly define a couple of things that we'll be talking about. Uh, one of them is this protein, uh, which is often referred to as either amyloid beta or A beta. Uh, this is a protein that a lot of the work on Alzheimer's disease has been focusing on. It's a membrane protein, and I don't think it, it's actually derived from another uh, protein called the amyloid precursor protein. And I don't think we really understand exactly what the amyloid precursor protein is, but this uh, protein, A-beta, uh, can uh, kind of misfold and form increasingly large kind of aggregates. Uh, the other protein that I'll be talking about is called tau. Uh, tau, I believe, uh, plays a role in microtubules, which are small structures within the cell that kind of help uh, move different components around. And there's been a lot of thought that uh, tau has also been identified as being a major uh, player in Alzheimer's disease. So with that little bit of introduction, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Dr. Murray, who can tell us a little bit more about kind of the underlying signs of Alzheimer's disease. Okay, actually, that was a great introduction, good way to pave the road. So as you mentioned, A-beta is an extracellular protein or sort of an aggregate that we'll see outside of a brain cell, a neuron, whereas tau will accumulate within a brain cell and and can be seen outside of the the cell once the uh, neuron dies. But the the interesting aspects are um, that people really kind of have a bit of a controversy over which comes first, chicken or the egg type, you know, dilemma, or perhaps both are accumulating at separate times and for different reasons. And so, um, because of the fact that there are two different proteins a lot for you know many many decades, um, there have been people who focus on one or the other, and I think slowly the field has really brought together the idea of investigating both amyloid and tau. And traditionally, the reason um, the field had focused on amyloid pathology is um, a good set of Uh, valuable experiments that are based in genetics. So there is a risk factor, the second 
uh, largest risk factor next to age, which is an ApoE genotype. So it's basically a subtle change in your genetics that puts you at an increased risk for Alzheimer's. And this is directly related to amyloid pathology. There are also uh, sort of genetic mutations in the apolipoprotein that you had described, the APP, um, which is sort of the beginning part of amyloid. And so really the field for the last 25 years has focused on amyloid with a little bit of focus on tau. And, and the very fact that both amyloid and tau are required for a neuropathologic diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease really begs the question, um, should we be focusing on one or the other, or really should we kind of move toward focusing on both? Um, a lot of individuals have now um, sort of worked together to sort of bring their two different types of expertise. For instance, in our recent publication in the Brain Journal, we um, looked at both of these two different proteins and really tried to ask the question, if within a set of individuals who have advanced Alzheimer's disease, and what I mean by that is they have significant accumulation of the amyloid aggregates um, throughout the brain, as well as the tau pathology, um, what contributes sort of the greatest to cognitive decline? And, and there are statistical approaches for this. And correlation does not equal causation, but when we're trying to understand um, who's the bad guy, you know, necessarily, we can put to, within a person, we can look at the amyloid profile and the tau profile and compare across a large series. And if we hold them standard, we can kind of see who is sort of winning the race. And so what we did is we originally looked at about 3,500 brains just at the range of Alzheimer's pathology. And then we focused in on about 1,400 individuals and found that amyloid pathology does, in fact, correlate with age of onset, disease duration, severity of the disease. But when you look at both amyloid and tau at the same time, the relationship between amyloid and these clinical measures disappears. And so we really are seeing that tau is contributing toward sort of the cognitive decline uh, that could have been attributed to amyloid. But in fact, it's because they have such a strong relationship with each other. Now, I know that, uh, I mean, I think the the difficulty of trying to correlate amyloid accumulation to the onset of disease is something that's been, I think, reasonably well characterized. I know that uh, for, for a long time, uh, people were trying to, you know, look at, uh, plaque burden, and it was discovered that the actual number of amyloid plaques in the brain really didn't correspond well to the severity of the disease. And I think there was there was also a clinical trial where they tried to inject, they tried to develop an immunological response against these plaques. Um, and so they gave patients antibodies, and that while they, uh, this may have been done in mice, but I remember hearing about this, that while um, the antibody was really good at eliminating the plaques. It, uh, it actually accelerated the course of the, the disease, which made a lot, which has caused a lot of controversy or a lot of questioning about whether or not the plaques are important. And I know that it's caused a lot of the kind of amyloid-centric people to think more about uh, how, for example, kind of smaller aggregates, uh, these are uh, soluble, they're called oligomers, might be uh, actually responsible on the amyloid side. 
Um, but I always actually found a lot of that research to be kind of difficult to interpret because there was so much manipulation of the cells that had to go on to identify these oligomers. And my own research was actually studying different mutations of A-beta, and I looked at one that uh, was identified as causing, uh, that was related to Alzheimer's disease, but uh, basically formed fibrils and plaques really, really quickly in, in, in vitro studies. And so I'm actually intrigued to think that, that there might be something that's still related to A-beta and is maybe getting us away from these oligomers, but uh, taking a look at tau is maybe kind of the, uh, the more act the more acting uh, uh, protein. And I know that uh, some people have called it um, that if you, if you think of amyloid as the gun, tau is the bullet. And uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, it's funny. I don't think I've heard that, actually. I like that. Um, you know, it's, it's really difficult. So I start at the end, if you can think of it that way. Mm-hmm. People who donate their brains donate their postmortem tissue. And so I literally get one chance. Luckily, I work with people who do neuroimaging, and we have followed these patients for years and years, and there is really elegant studies that demonstrate amyloid accumulation using an amyloid agent PET, whether it's PET, you know, the PIB compound or fluorobetapyr. Um, the more difficulty is we don't have a really good solid tau imaging agent. There's a few out there, but There is a gentleman by the name of Heiko Brock who has really revolutionized the field of Alzheimer's disease in that he developed a staging scheme that allows us to sort of, in a sense, measure the severity of tau pathology by attributing a Brock stage. And then another gentleman came along, his protege actually, was Dietmar Thal in 2002, and so now we have a Thal amyloid phase. And if you look at individuals from the age of zero to 100, at least in Brock's series and a few others who have validated it, you do not see accumulation of amyloid prior to accumulation of tau. Now that gets directly back to your proposal where you indicated the insoluble forms, and they're really quite intriguing because in a sense they're blind to uh, neuropathologists because what we rely on are antibodies to uh, sort of uncover the soluble protein, which is the reason why we talk about it as, um, or rather the soluble, insoluble proteins, because they kind of stay in the tissue. And so, you know, that's what, I guess it's a million dollar question, which one comes first. And uh, from my perspective, given Brock's information where he's showing tau pathology accumulating in the brainstem of individuals in their 30s it's scary because i'm 34 (laughs) but um that's the hard part these soluble forms are kind of difficult to reproduce across different labs but they do help to at least indicate that there is um, a possible role as you mentioned of amyloid being the gun tau being the bullet but i think we can also consider that they don't interact until a, a crossing point, you know, the, the, the crossroads, so to speak. So imagine that amyloid just accumulating on its own because it actually begins in the cortex where the outer part of your brain, so on top of your head, you can think of your forehead. And whereas with tau pathology, it's accumulating lower in your brain, in your memory center. So you can imagine sort of behind your chin um, and behind your temple. 
and they both accumulate on their own in normal people. We, we've had a, a whole host of individuals who come to, to autopsy that have both, but there is, I think, this sort of crossing point. And so I don't know that one is the instigator and one's the sort of um, ag- ag- aggressive form. I think it's at some point they cross. Uh, at least that's what I, I mean. That's my hypothesis. There's a lot of really good data out there to support all different types, and so we have a lot of fun at meetings just kind of discussing it. Yeah, no, I've I've uh, been reading through papers, and I mean because I was kind of reading through different people's ideas of because it's uh, there's multiple there was basically multiple papers of, of kind of short opinions from people about you know kind of which comes first, and they they were discussing you know is it is which one's the chicken, which one's the egg, or are they kind of neither the chicken nor the egg, but they just, they're two different proteins that come together. Um, and I know that the, for example, the tau, you're talking about how it accumulates in different areas. I think one of them is the locus ceruleus. Correct. And people were talking about, so this is an area of the brain. Um, and they're basically, they were uh, saying that sometimes it, this, you know, you get significant tau accumulation and you don't really see a whole lot of A-beta deposition or, or in, particularly A-beta in this region. And, that, oh. um, and so that it's really difficult to understand kind of what's the relationship between these two. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons why people have, have kind of fixated on, on amyloid is that uh, a lot of our early work done on it was focused on mutations that either affected the A-beta protein or that affected the proteins that kind of uh, – deal with A-beta, like the presenilins. And so I think, and those were people that developed this Alzheimer's disease much earlier in life. And I, I think I've heard some people say that, you know, maybe that's that's true for these kind of early onset familial forms, but for the kind of sporadic, non-genetically induced forms, that maybe it's not so clear that it's, that it's just amyloid or, you know, and that amyloid then causes tau problems. So one piece of really kind of intriguing data that has come out of our group and others have really uh, confirmed with imaging is this idea of atypical Alzheimer's disease. So you can imagine um, the typical Alzheimer's patient will develop tangles, as you just described, sort of locus ceruleus, which is the brainstem that's like in your neck region, and then will then um, spread to sort of your memory center and then eventually to the outer parts of your brain. So you'll have this sort of global involvement. But there are these really interesting uh, typical forms where it may be that tau is actually occurring first in the cortex and then later involving the hippocampus. And in fact, these forms of um, Alzheimer's patients lack memory impairment in the majority Hmm. of them. Now, these are the patients who are younger. They're more often male, have a very rapid decline. Um, they actually even have different genetics that we're investigating. Now, the complete opposite is true. We have another form of atypical where that sort of memory form where the accumulation of the tau protein in the, the memory center is so much further advanced than what you would expect with very minimal accumulation in the cortex. Hmm. Interestingly, this is all tau, and I really tried to find um, the same sort of patterns, you could, if you will, with amyloid, with respect to amyloid, and I couldn't. Across these three different atypical forms, amyloid occurs the same. 
Like it, it spreads the same. Well, quote unquote, remember I, I work with postmortem tissue, so I can't really yeah. say spread, but it accumulates the same. The patterns are the same. Of course, there's one exception, which is posterior cortical atrophy, but we won't get into nuances, <laughs> but um, it's, it's, so it's this really intriguing aspect. And I, I think that's why, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed looking at both because, you know, you actually brought up the information about the um, amyloid um, therapies and how the people then uh, sort of kind of got worse much more quickly than would have been expected. And there is some um, tell or there's some mouse data about it as well. Now, intriguingly, what if this tau accumulation in the cortex where that's where amyloids accumulating. So they're kind of, let's pretend they meet like they're two lonely people and they meet and they decide to cause chaos in our brains and they get a chance to meet earlier. And so maybe that's the reason that in what we call hippocampal sparing Alzheimer's disease, there's this sort of rapid decline. And so once again, like there may be no chicken or egg. It just might be a really bad friendship that unfortunately Alzheimer's disease suffer from. So, so, so kind of, oh uh, yeah. So, so kind of thinking of of both of them as being, you know, not not one dependent on the other, but you you know, when when both of them happen to meet, uh, then that's when you really start to have the the trouble. That actually I think is is interesting because it helps explain. Uh, so one of the one of the reasons why I started kind of rethinking about Alzheimer's disease uh, was this uh, the results of or some of the some of the press releases from a company Biogen, which had a new uh, immunotherapy that was directed against amyloid, uh, and it made a lot of news because it was uh, being bumped up to a more advanced clinical trial. And this is an antibody that uh, they said binds aggregated forms of A-beta, uh, not the monomeric or soluble forms. And it was originally derived from, and, and this is just from like uh, the Alzheimer's Forum website, um, it was originally derived from antibodies that were uh, identified in people that were healthy and eight, that were older, but were cognitively normal. And they were, you know, basically said that in uh, mouse data and in humans, it looked like it was uh, reducing uh, plaques and uh, was basically also helping provide some cognitive improvement. So it got this big, big, you know, press release and it was mentioned in a lot of papers. And I thought, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that, that somebody tried this before and it worked badly. Um, and so I was really surprised that, you know, basically this whole new approach happened again. Um, and then I did a little more digging, and I was also found, and this is uh, pretty recent uh, from the Journal of Neuroscience, that in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease that someone was trying uh, using immunotherapy directed against tau, and they found that it was able to modulate both tau and also uh, reduced uh, amyloid pathology in Alzheimer's, uh, in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Alzheimer brains. So I think it's interesting to think that, you know, maybe maybe instead of thinking about how we have to figure out that one is more important than the other, that it's it's when the two kind of meet and that if you can if you can approach either one therapeutically, you have the p- potential to kind of stop this toxic interaction. I wholly agree. I mean, that that's the thing is I think if anything that we try to emphasize is don't ignore one or the other. Both are necessary for us to even diagnose the disease. And so I think it's kind of beautiful to see this sort of, um, and it's been increasing over the last, probably over the last decade, more and more attention has been paid to both tau and amyloid. And of course, even, I mean, we're even ignoring synaptic loss for mm-hmm. um, glia from our support cells, but it is, 
when you keep an open mind and you, you know, reduce sort of a myopic view that things may present themselves. And, and so, yeah, no, targeting amyloid is not, shouldn't be considered a faux pas. Targeting the sort of uh, aggressive forms or the malicious forms of amyloid may still provide us with a therapeutic benefit that, um, like, for instance, that Biogen's been seeking out. One of the things that I was reading about that is interesting that we were both talking about is the idea of having this dual approach of looking at uh, both tau and amyloid for treating Alzheimer's disease. And there's been some interesting work that showed that immunotherapy against tau um, in mice can actually have effects against some of the amyloid-related changes in uh, mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. I was wondering if you think that uh, targeting tau has the potential to also affect the development of amyloid uh, pathology and human brains, ultimately. I mean, it very well may be. There was a recent study that just came out last week that, um, for the first time, kind of showed strong evidence of a link between APP, apolipoprotein, um, basically the protein that amyloid is cleaved from. And so it showed that perhaps this specific protein is, is in charge of kind of drawing in the tau intracellularly and causing some of this dysfunction. And so there has to be some sort of crosstalk, of course. If, if, there, if, if this APP molecule that's sort of like I said, sort of the grandfather of amyloid before it gets cleaved is is in charge or has plays a role with tau. Why not the reverse? Maybe the effect on tau there could be a loss of a, a region. And so, yeah, I, I think that it's an intriguing possibility. And I mean, the the fact that both of them are implicated in the disease, it can't disqualify one or the other. What do you think the future of Alzheimer's therapy is going to be? Do you think that these immunotherapy approaches uh, that we've been talking about will pave the way, or do you think there's some other uh, method that we are overlooking? I think there's an approach we're overlooking. One of the really cool, it's almost like you're reading an Isaac Asimov novel, is this gene therapy where they're able to, um, so not so much just the um, what you were describing, but like, they're able to actually inject a gene that codes for, let's say, a neurotrophic factor, or maybe the reverse where it, it would code for something that allows the normal tau and the normal amyloid to just go along their happy, merry ways. But it's going to be some sort of cocktail approach. And um, I, it's so difficult to say because there is this very selective vulnerability of the brain that we can predict, we know what's going to be affected in Alzheimer's. And so maybe if we have to very much target, but it's so hard to predict what it's going to be. But yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be the immunotherapies that will, will work. I think it's going to have to be very focused because tau and amyloid are important to our normal function. And so if you don't impact just the specific toxic species, our brain will kind of fight back and have side effects that may be detrimental, as has already been seen. Okay, well, I don't have any other questions left for you. Is there anything that you would like to add? Hmm. I guess for people who, you know, after following this news release, I received a lot of really touching emails about what the people are going through, whether or not it's uh, an individual's husband or more of a fear, I think, of family history seems to come up a lot where they just feel that they're, you know, they're bound to get it. But 
the hard thing to comprehend or to digest probably is better the better word is that right now what we understand about Alzheimer's disease is 95% isn't related to a genetic mutation. It's not related to this sort of destruction of our genes. There may be subtle changes, but, um, you know, just because you have a father or a grandmother that had Alzheimer's disease, it doesn't mean the end of the world. What it does point to, and I think in general you could say this about anything, is it's lifestyle. If 95% is not due to our genetics, we really need to think about our lifestyles. And there are some really strong data that supports walking for 30 minutes a day, playing Sudoku and keeping that brain active, uh, avoiding diabetes. And if you have diabetes, get treated. Avoiding hypertension. And if you have hypertension, get treated. General healthy lifestyles prevent you from, you know, falling, from having surgeries. And, and those are the things that people, you know, while this sort of, I heard somebody call it the silver tsunami or this epidemic is upon us, we need to think about what we as an individual can do to help our future. You know, I, I mean, if anything in the future, I hope, that's my hope. My hope is the prevention. I real, I mean, obviously, I would love for a cure to one day show up on our doorsteps, but the preventative aspects, if we can take it on as ourselves, I think that that will be really the revolution in the, the face of Alzheimer's.